Let's pray together. Father, our good and gracious Father in heaven, we come to you today with confidence, not because of ourselves, but because of Jesus. Our confession that we just sang is very, very true. We are desperate in need of you. And we thank you that in Christ you welcome us to come to you. We thank you for your word that you've given us. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you teach us. And so we ask you to do that this morning. Would you make our hearts ready to receive from your word? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning. It's good to see your faces uh, again. Um, it's a joy to be together on this Lord's Day, to, to rest, to be refreshed in the Word of God, to be reconnected to one another a little bit, to gather together, uh, and not just gather together here, but locally, but as we are joining our voices with thousands upon thousands all throughout this day across the globe, in singing the same sorts of songs, in saying the same sorts of words, in confessing the same truths, along with brothers and sisters all over the globe. That that's happening today. And in just a few minutes, you will be, along with the rest of Christ's people, recommissioned out to a world in desperate need of hope that only comes through Jesus. That the restoration and the the hope and the healing that only comes through through Christ who has come to restore and redeem. For those of you here in the room, it's wonderful to see your faces. For those of you who are joining us online at 9 o'clock, know that we are continuing to pray for you and for God to meet you where, you're, where you are, even this morning. As we are continuing our summer series in Psalms, uh, in the Psalms, you can grab your Bibles. We'll be in Psalm chapter 3. And as you're looking for Psalm 3 in your Bibles, I'd like to give you a little context. This is the first psalm so far that has a a title as part of the psalm. Not the words, save me, O my God, which are in bold above the psalm in my ESV, or maybe your Bible has a, a title above it as well. That's an editor's note title. But the actual title underneath that Notice the large three usually. And it says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. That phrase, that sentence is there in the original. And what's helpful is that it speaks not just to authorship. It's a psalm of David. But we are told this psalm gives us, uh, happened at a specific time in the life of David. We know where it falls in the history of of Israel and of David's life. This psalm was written, or at least is written about, the time when David was fleeing from his son, Absalom. Now maybe you know that story, maybe you don't, but it should spark a question. What do we know about this guy? Now we won't spend a lot of time here, but it's helpful to know that we can read about this time in David's life from 2 Samuel chapter 15. And and we won't, like I said, spend a ton of time here. I'd encourage you if you want to do some good reading this week and in, in, in kind of processing through the meat and the meaning of Psalm chapter 3, start in 2 Samuel chapter 10 and read through all the way through 15 and 16 and see what's going on in the life of David that would lead to this point where he's uh, on the run from his 
own son. So let me give you just a quick overview of what's happening in 2 Samuel 15 that helps us understand, I think, Psalm chapter 3. Now, by the time we get to chapter 15, David has already had a, a handful of children. He has already sinfully taken Bathsheba into his bed. He has already sinfully had Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, killed. David has already been confronted by Nathan the prophet, who came to David after all this had gone on and told him a story of a man who had a bunch of sheep but took the one sheep from another man and then calls him out and says, You are that man, David. And David could have had Nathan killed, but rather he is broken because of his sin. He confesses, which is where we get Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. This has already kind of taken place. And as we get to this point, there has been conflict in David's family. And here in 2 Samuel 15, David, king in Jerusalem, is ruling but with an, a growing problem, an insurrection. His son Absalom is already plotting against him. 2 Samuel 15 verses 1 through 6 tell us that Absalom had gathered some men that were loyal to him, that respected him. And that he would, and Absalom would stand near the gate of the city, and his people from Israel would come in to bring their requests and their concerns to the king, asking for help and for wisdom and for justice. Absalom would stand there and say, The king doesn't have time for you. If I was in charge, I'd have some good, I'd have some good wisdom for you. I'd, I'd, I'd bring about justice, I would solve your disputes. And verse 6 tells us that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He was conspiring to overthrow David as king. And when he felt he had enough support behind him, both in terms of military might and public opinion, he put his plan into action. He made his move. And David got word that Absalom had turned against him. Your son Absalom has turned against you, is the message he got. And because of the oncoming army and the overwhelming support of the people around Absalom, David fled. He left the palace and the kingdom. And we'll get into a little more detail, but that's the context in which Psalm 3 was written. David, on the run from an army of enemies, led by his own son. He was full of fear and shame. His head was covered. He was barefoot. And his, and his face toward the ground. Now, I believe that this psalm has something to say to each one of us as well. Who among us hasn't dealt with difficulty or disappointment? Who among us hasn't experienced hurt and grief and devastation? Look around. In so many spheres, even today, culturally... And personally, big, massive picture and really personal, up close, intimate picture. We groan and we grieve from injustice and unrest on a large scale to a heartbreaking diagnosis from doctors on a personal level. Difficulty, disappointment, and devastation is a reality for us when we live in this world that is broken by sin. But I also believe 
that Psalm 3 offers us some hope in the midst of that brokenness. That as believers in Jesus, as we come to Psalm 3, we are reminded that we are not confined only to our circumstances. That there is a remedy. There's a hope that God will bring about deliverance. That He will defend us even while we wait on Him. One other note um, we, uh, we're introduced to this word in Psalm 3 that we haven't read yet in the Psalms, because we're only three chapters in. This word, Selah. A- and commentators are a little split as to what exactly it means. Um, I talked to, to uh, Mitch uh, Friedman and I were talking this week, and he was like, I prefer to think of it as a key change. All right? Like in, a, in music, it, it's possibly a musical term. It might be more of a poetic term. <clears throat> I kind of like the idea of a key change, you know, when everything gets going, and then you're like, yeah. Key change. Some of you are like, I don't like the key change. Some of you, key change is your love language. I know this about you because someone actually told me that one time. Key changes are my love language. And I thought, well, I'll pass that along to Kyle. Um, I actually think it's probably, likely, a bit of a pause. It's a think about this. Pause and reflect. And so that's, for our purposes, that's how um, we'll kind of read it today. I'll give a little pause as we read it. Um, but that's, that's, that's a, maybe a helpful just piece of information as you're reading the Psalms. There's this word. All right, let's read Psalm 3 together. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This is the word of the Lord. May it bear fruit by the Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. Now I'd like to look at Psalm 3 with with a bit of a framework in mind. And these will be our two points today. There's a reality of a world broken by sin. And there's a remedy for that brokenness. There's a reality to a world marred and broken by sin. And there's a remedy for the broken. First, let's look at reality. Psalm 3 is written in the midst of terrible, terrible circumstances. Psalm 3 doesn't pretend as if the world is not broken. It exists right smack in the middle of brokenness. And I think like much of God's Word, actually speaks truth in the context of real life. I use the words difficulty, disappointment, and devastation. And there are other words you could use, but these encompass, I think, most of what David's experiencing and ultimately most of our own trials in this life on this side of eternity. And I chose these words that alliterate because it helps me remember things. So maybe that's helpful for you or maybe not, but it helps me. So difficulty. In the life of David, 
you could say David's family life was marked with turmoil. His first wife was hostile to God, in fact, mocked him for his worship of abandon before the Ark of the Covenant when it was returned to the temple. Mocked him, mocked his faith. His children did some horrible things. His son Amnon assaulted David's daughter, his half-sister Tamar, and Absalom, the one who we already heard about, promised, I'm going to kill him. And ultimately did lead to and facilitated Amnon's death, which caused a rift in the family, you could imagine. On top of the rift that was already caused by abuse. So there's layers here. And Absalom's anger and disdain for his father just grew and grew and grew until it turned into rebellion. And David, escaping with his life, being on the run, you could argue his family life and this particular situation in Psalm 3 is a difficult one. Hmm? What about disappointment? It's one thing to have family conflict. We've all experienced probably some level of family conflict at a family... uh, reunion or a holiday dinner. It's another thing to have rebellion and threat come from your own house. Think about it. I imagine that David not only grieved the brokenness in his own children, and how could he not feel like just a a failure as a parent? Putting myself in his shoes just as a dad, not even king of, of, of Israel, just as a dad recognizing, man, my family is messed up. What, what have I done? How could it come to this? All of his best hopes, not only for Israel as a nation, but for his own family, in a moment like this, probably feel irreparably damaged. Can this even be fixed? So it's the difficulty in the circumstance and the disappointment as he looks at it and goes, I, I don't even know what to do with that. And ultimately, could you imagine him holed up in a cave somewhere? His kingdom in ruins, his family in ruins, going like, is this it? Is it over? Is this too far gone? I mean, wasn't there supposed to be blessing and flourishing under, under David as, as king? And here the, the nation has turned against him. Some of his children are dead, and at least one of his sons who is alive is trying to kill him. Just pack it in now. Right? O Lord, David says in verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Many are my foes. And what they are saying is, God has abandoned you. Now many of us have come today carrying various burdens. Walking through difficult situations. And some might be looking at David's life going like, well, I came in today feeling kind of down, but maybe my life's not so bad. I don't know where you're at today. But no matter the scale, all of life's brokenness comes as a result of sin. There is not one difficulty or disappointment that doesn't result from either the consequences of our own sin or the effect and the consequences of someone else's sin against us. 
the structures that are broken in the world in which we live, they are broken because sinful humanity creates human structures. We bring our brokenness to bear in those places. They are imperfect because we are imperfect. And think about the areas of trial in your own life, the places of difficulty. What relationships and situations remain chronically difficult for you? What areas of struggle and hurt just seem to remain? What about disappointment? Where have you been let down or betrayed? Perhaps it's a friend or a child or a spouse who has broken your trust time and time again. And you feel simultaneously broken and like a failure. You feel hurt by the other person's sin against you. And that's just left an open wound. And you're left wondering, what do I do with this? Or maybe you're bearing full-on devastation where it just has fallen apart. The remedy came too late. The damage was done. Is there any hope left? It's in those places that we might resonate with the voice of Israel against David. Your God has abandoned you. There is no salvation for you. See, we don't have to shy away from reality. The effects of sin on all creation, on humanity, on our institutions, and our structures, on our personal lives, stems from Genesis 3 in the garden with our first parents all the way to this morning as you and I rolled out of bed. There is a painful reality to the world in which we live. And we see all of that here in Psalm 3, verse 1. Many are my foes. Many rise up against me. Many say to me, you have no hope. But, while we do live in a world broken by sin, we aren't destroyed and we actually aren't without hope. I think David finds in Psalm 3 a remedy. That's our second point today. We are not only confined by our circumstances. Right? The the remedy for our distress in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of disappointment and devastation, is not merely a change in circumstances, but is a spirit-enabled confidence in God. I want to touch on both of those points. The hope that we have is not merely in changed circumstances. Psalm 3 ends... After verse 8, and if you notice, David is still on the run. 2 Samuel 15 tells us David is fleeing Jerusalem barefoot, with his head low, he's covered in shame. And in chapter 16, we read that there's a man from the line of Saul, who was king before David, who hates David. Hates his name, hates his family, who apparently curses continually. Second Samuel tells us. And he meets David and his companions as they're fleeing Jerusalem out on the road and pelts him with rocks and with dirt and curses at him continuously until they get to the Jordan. And it tells us when they finally arrived at the Jordan, they were weary. Friends, don't miss this. The, the hope that David finds in Psalm 3 and the hope that we can hold on to is not tied to a change in circumstances. Some of the difficulty, some of the disappointments, some of the devastation in our lives may remain for as long as we live. And please hear me. I'm not advocating for doing nothing. 
I'm not. Pursuing righteousness and justice, addressing harmful, dangerous, and challenging situations, the Lord gives grace in many ways. The care and help of friends or for others in your community, the the common grace of counselors and doctors and all sorts of things. God absolutely loves to work uh, in all sorts of ways through our own hands as believers to bring relief and protection and care to the afflicted and the oppressed. But if we believe that our only hope is a change of circumstances, I fear we may miss out on the beautiful gospel hope that David seems to find here in Psalm 3, generations before anyone knew the name of Jesus, the person that embodies that hope. No, in the midst of his circumstances, while the life was still tough, David professes a deep confidence in God. That's the remedy we see in Psalm 3. My foes are many. They are declaring to me. They are speaking out loud. They are preaching a sermon that God has abandoned me. And David says in verse 3, But you, O Lord, Yahweh, in the midst of his pain, David is remembering and declaring, this is who God actually is. He says this, You, O Lord, are my shield, my glory, and the lifter of my head. Now, what does it mean that God is your shield? Who will ultimately defend you against those who desire to do you harm? Now, David believed that the Lord was his shield. That doesn't mean he didn't carry a real shield. In fact, David had around him men who gave him protection at almost all times. But he knew, he was convinced that God was the one who was his ultimate shield. In times of difficulty, rather than trusting in his own strength, in his own cleverness, in his own ability, he relied on God to protect and defend him. God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, God said, I will be your shield and your great reward. As part of the covenant with Abraham, I will be your shield and your great reward. And Isaac Ambrose was an English Puritan who lived from 1604 to 1664. And he was speaking, I found this this week, and I thought that it was fantastic. He asks this, Now who is our shield but Christ? And who is our reward but Christ? Abraham believed the promise of the seed. And who is the head of the seed but Christ? Yes, he believed in that promised seed in whom all the nations of the earth should be blessed. And who was that but Christ? Abraham was believing that Jesus, even though he didn't know his name, Jesus was his shield and his great reward. David, even though he didn't know his name, was believing Jesus is my shield. God will protect me. He will guard me. He is my shield and my great reward. So what does life in the midst of challenging circumstances look like or, or feel different for us if we actually believe and live as if Christ is our shield? What does it mean that God is your glory? In David's case, it meant that while his head was hung in shame, while he was grieving, 
his hope for a restored family or reclaiming his throne, that neither of those things would give him lasting glory. They were important. They were to be desired. But they wouldn't last. It's the eternal glory of God that brings light into darkness. It could be David's way of saying, I have no glory of my own. I put no trust in my fame or my fortune. You alone, O God, are the joy, the boast, and the glory of my life. It doesn't rest in us, our honor, our power, our statue, our position. Paul says the same in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God. The illuminating understanding of God's glory is seen in Jesus' face. Paul goes on and says, and we have this treasure in jars of clay to show why are we given a taste of this glory in these broken, cracked pots to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. David was saying, you are my glory, not me. And if anyone had right to claim glory, it was David. Restored Israel, restored worship, peace, prosperity. And David goes, no, that's fickle. It's fleeting. Look, my life is falling apart. No, God is my glory. The glory of Christ is on display. He called us. He came to us. He redeemed us. He took our sin and rose again, defeating our death. He ascended and will come again in power and glory. Clearly, it's not our glory. So when disappointment rules your day, what does it look like to believe and live as if God is your glory and not yourself? And finally, what does it mean that God is the lifter of your head? In David's weariness, when he's just looking at his life in shambles, devastation, why not just give up? Hmm? Why not just pack it in? Turn himself over, probably be hanged or beheaded by his son. It's fine. I think David is trusting in the character of God. God had been faithful time and time and time again. Why would God fail now? Now some of you know exactly how he felt. Alone, depressed, ashamed. And the enemy of our souls, Satan, will often pile on with accusations. Satan loves to exploit your brokenness by reminding you of sin and heaping shame on top of shame. The remedy is, isn't pretending it doesn't exist. It isn't just moving on and trying to forget about it. It isn't focusing solely on the brokenness of, in hopes of creating a perfect solution. No, it's, it's a humble confidence to say, in the midst of the worst of circumstances, God is my shield. God is my glory. God will lift my head. He is good. He has not failed yet. He will not fail now. Pastor Sam Storm says this on this passage. This isn't arrogance or presumption or fleshly defiance. 
He says, it is humble, wholehearted assurance that God can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. People often say, I just can't bear to look at anyone in the face after this. But God will make you able. He is the Lord who makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. God does what we cannot. So the remedy to disappointment and despair is a Holy Spirit-enabled confidence in the character of God. And this is the true hope for every one of us who believes in Jesus. A blessing and a gift of the one who follows Christ. And this confidence isn't just a feeling. It's not a Christian facade or a mask that we wear instead of dealing with the honesty of our pain. This confidence is attached to the faithfulness of Jesus and produces something in us. Look at what David does in light of his confidence in God. Verse 4, he says, I cried aloud to the Lord and He answered me. David cries out to God in his distress. Why? Because he believes God actually hears him. You don't cry out to someone if you don't think they're going to answer. You don't ask a question of someone if you don't think you'll get a response. David cries out to God, confident that he'll respond. His crying out is a, is a uh, result. It's proof that he believes that God will hear him. It's producing something in him. Look at verse 5. He says, I lay down and slept and woke again, for the Lord sustained me. This might seem like an odd piece of information to you that David took a nap. But in, in the midst of immense stress and brokenness, sometimes sleep is hard to come by. I don't typically have trouble falling asleep. I don't. I can usually kind of fall asleep whenever, wherever. But when I fall asleep, I don't always sleep well. Often during hard or stressful or anxious times, I will fall asleep exhausted and wake up exhausted. As if my mind never stops working, even though my body might be quiet for a while. But I have to ask myself, and I'll ask you this very morning, are you keeping your heart beating right now? There's this weird thing that happens when you fall asleep. You're not like in a coma, but sort of. Your brain tells your body to like shut off certain functions. So you're not like jogging in your sleep most of the time. Some of you still do. But by and large, right? Who keeps your lungs breathing in and out all night? You're not consciously thinking, breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in. No. I contend that God sits there in His sovereign care with His hand on your heart doing this all night long. That He's in His sovereign care expanding your lungs to bring in oxygen and then pushing them in so that you expel the carbon dioxide you don't need. God does that. David says, I lay down and I slept. And I woke again. Because the Lord sustained me. I don't control the stars or the universe or let alone my own breathing. 
the Lord sustain me. He could sleep because he was confident that God was holding him. This confidence in God isn't fake. It isn't a facade. It produces something. David cries out to God, and he actually rests. There's a whole lot more we can talk about when it comes to rest. That's another day. Look at verse 6. He says, I will not be afraid. Now, this could be a mantra of David where he's just reminding himself, I will not be afraid. I will not be afraid. I will not be afraid. Sometimes we need those reminders to ourselves, right? In the midst of my circumstances, I'm no longer being driven and controlled by my fear. But because the Lord is my shield, because the Lord is sustaining me and holding me in the palm of his hand, because he's the lifter of my head, the one who will restore my hope and my joy, I don't need to fear the threats of armies. I recognize the lie that I'm being told that God has abandoned me. This kind of confidence produces something in us. And then... David prays this. Look at the last two verses here of Psalm chapter 3. He says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. What a great prayer. You're like, ooh, that got a little uh, violent. Real quick. Arise, O Lord, save me. I am sure, David is saying, that you will deliver the final blow, the right hook, if you will, to the jaw of my enemies. You will knock them out, knock them down. You, Lord, will deliver that blow. And I love that phrase, you will break the teeth. That is, you will disarm and dismantle the weapons of the wicked. Jesus disarms and dismantles the weapons of our enemy. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 that he, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Jesus' death shamed the wicked because he triumphed over them in the cross. That is, in Christ's death on the cross for sin, When he did that, he took away the teeth of condemnation. Before Jesus, the enemy could rightly accuse you and me and say, this is your sin, you're condemned by it. And our answer is, you're right. You're right. I have no defense. But in Christ, I have a defense. The teeth of condemnation are are broken. Romans 8 tells us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the enemy says, these are your sins. And I say, you're right. And Jesus saves me from those sins. The teeth of the wicked are broken. What can the enemy accuse me of? Christ delivered the knockout blow to sin, death, hell, and the grave. And so for David, as he looks to God's past faithfulness and trusts that God will come to save him, And we, on this side of the cross, read David's words in Psalm 3 with eyes that are set on the risen Christ. He has proved his love for us. He has broken the teeth of our enemy. He is the blessing of God. He is our salvation. Psalm 3, verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing beyond your people. Jesus is our deliverer. 
He has already delivered us from from death to life. He has already transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And he will come again to bring to completion all that he has begun. Friends, we don't have to pretend that difficulty and disappointment and devastation caused by sin isn't real. But Psalm 3 reminds us that we are not confined to those circumstances. Instead, we can have hope that God will deliver us and He will defend us while we wait on Him. Would you pray with me? God, we do confess as we started our time that we are in great need of You. We thank You that You are the God who sees us. That You, Christ Jesus, deliver us and defend us. And that You, Holy Spirit, dwell within to comfort us and to guide. Father, we lay before You our difficulties, our brokenness, our disappointments. The places where we feel just devastated and wrecked. And in laying them before You, we are believing tangibly that in You is our redemption. In You is our healing. In You is our hope. Would You strengthen us now as we come to Your table? Renew our hope even while we wait on You. We ask this because of Jesus who loves us. Amen.